0: Hello and welcome back to the NovPod, hosted by Anesthesia on Air, brought to you in association with the Royal College of Anesthetists. I'm one of your co-hosts, Owen Dorr, and with me, as always, is Duncan Kemp. So today we have maintenance and emergence, where we will go through the definitions of what we mean by maintenance, along with some checklists of how to keep your patients safe, and some other bits and bobs. We'll then move on to emergence and go through some definitions and some ways to make sure you're optimising your practice before finally we will have some links for you guys to go away and consolidate your learning. So as ever, enjoy.
1: Patients asleep. Bobs are all fine, airways in, time for coffee. Unfortunately not, firstly, due to the
0: guidance that we can't leave an patients patient alone. Secondly, due to the fact that those drugs that you've given at induction will last minutes. You need to be able to put a maintenance agent on. Owen, when we say maintenance, what does that actually mean? I mean, it's in the title. We are looking to maintain as the. That's a terrible answer. And, well, I know. I mean, it's <laughs> not the same way. And no, it's not time for coffee because maintenance is about maintaining patient homeostasis and also giving good conditions for the surgeon to operate. The better the conditions, the quicker the surgeon.
1: Usually, that's some very slow surgeons that I've met. Very true. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add to that, Duncan? Like you said, you're keeping the patient's physiology in normal parameters and counteracting any surgical and anaesthetic insult to their physiology, Yeah. then for the surgery, you're trying to optimise the surgeon's environment and allow them to undertake the surgery as smoothly as possible in order to minimise complication and shorten your anaesthetic time.
0: Perfect. And. Part of that keeping them safe involves making sure you're continuing your anaesthetic agent, IV or inhaled. It includes respiratory, making sure you're doing adequate ventilation for the patient and making sure that you're keeping them cardiovascularly stable.
1: And by ventilation, we mean oxygenation.
0: Yeah. We've just got the tube in. We're tying it. Are we going straight in or is there a little things that you want to check before we go in?
1: Make sure you've adequately secured your airway. I remember as a novice learning to tie a tube securely. I was really OCD about getting it nice and secure. Making sure that you're ventilating adequately so you haven't got a massive leak or a tube hasn't gone down one lung. And then also making sure you haven't caused the hemodynamic crash after your induction. Double check the blood pressure and you've got your ECG monitoring on still extra monitoring you're going to have for the procedure is attached or you at least have it with you so you can sort it out in theatre and make sure that the surgeons if they need to do anything prior to the patient coming in are aware and they can come in and get that done in the anaesthetic room ideally.
0: Then there's small stuff like knowing how to move the patient in you detach the monitoring block depending on where you are actually Mm. make sure that the ODP is ready to go And last thing you'll then do is switch the ventilator off and move the patient through, where you then will line up against the operating bed. You will be in charge of organising and leading the roll and move across, and that's because you're holding the airway. And then we roll on steady and then move on slide. We can't just switch off there, can we, Duncan?
1: This is the key part, you're in the very busy theatre environment now where everyone's doing checks, there's lots of talk going on, but you need to make sure you re-establish everything that you've disconnected to move the patient. Particularly, you re-establish your airway and breathing and ventilation, Mm -hmm. you re-establish your maintenance of anaesthesia, whether that's intravenous or gas, and then we go on to our full A to G checklist. Which sounds a lot, but the more you do it, the quicker it becomes. And it goes from a checklist of you potentially having to write it down, if that's useful, to quickly, from a glance, at the end of the bed, knowing everything's established and maintained, and then you're ready to go on to the next phase of surgery, which is often the WHO checklist, or surgeon preparing for to skin. These things are important
0: to be vigilant about, because if you're vigilant, you can prevent issues of the patient for example not being ventilated not being anesthetized the patient's blood pressure being a little bit low if you're looking out for it you can steer that ship before it reaches
1: a hypotension port yep. so to speak i think there's the stereotype of the anesthetist doing sudoku or wordle mm. and it is now is because there is that level of vigilance that's always active it doesn't need to take up so much cognitive process that you can't do anything else well, it's that's the, what you blame for your wordle
0: score being quite low, as so you're paying yeah, attention. To i say. Yeah. So, what could A stand for, Duncan?
1: I'm gonna take a punt. Airway. No. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> My life that's, is a lie. Yeah, our life's a lie. <laughs> so anesthesia. Yeah.
0: So you get yourself into trouble if the patient becomes light. You're entering risk of laryngospasm, patient moving, and essentially the patient entering. Anesthetic emergency land, so you need to make sure that you are maintaining anesthetic, and that can be via inhalational or IV. But just making sure in your eyes when you transfer them that either that ventilator has got some uh, some inhaled gas on it, or that your, IV agent yeah. TCI pump is working. So that's it. that's the first day. Second A that you mentioned? Oh, there's two A's in this list. Yeah, oh, know, there you go. That's airway, surely. Perfect. Okay, you've actually nailed that one. So that is making sure your airway secured, that, it's in the, uh, that it hasn't moved at all, and that you're connected to something called a tube holder so that if someone accidentally moves to the patient machine or anything, you're trying to reduce the risk of accidental extubation. Yeah. The other thing you need to look for is CO2. No CO2, no tube.
1: No trace, wrong place. Oof,
0: what could B be? i one for you.
1: I'm going to guess breathing.
0: Yes. Okay. There we go. Our second time lucky. You might just think that's oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. No. How are you breathing and ventilating the patient? What pressures are you doing that at? That could start making you think, okay, we are at a much higher pressure than we were in the anaesthetic room. Has something else gone on? And then what did I just say goes in? O- oxygen in, CO2 out. You can measure that by your saturation of the patient. You can also see what your fraction of spine oxygen is because 95% on the fi 2 of 0.8 is very different to an FiO2 of 0.3. And then, calm dioxide side, you can check for under or over ventilation of your patient. Okay, so B, tick. C, I'm
1: going to guess cardiovascular.
0: Nice. Okay, so that includes blood pressure. Essentially, you want to keep that within 10 to 20% of the blood pressure that you started off with, and you definitely want it um, above 90, unless there are specific indications for that. Heart rate, you also want to have that in the normal zone as well, and the ECG, the important point about that is you can keep an eye on the ST segments, because what can happen during surgery, Duncan? People can get heart
1: attacks. They can. Have you ever stopped surgery due to that? Yep. Yeah. yeah, abandoned the Whipples once because of that. It's not just the ST, it's also the rhythm as well. Oh, so yeah. So you can have a normal heart rate normal. but an abnormal rhythm.
0: And those who float their guide wires in too far, and all the, they, <laughs> they know yeah, how quickly you can develop into abnormal exactly. rhythm. Okay, brilliant. So that's circulation. Yeah. Is there anything that you would put on for disability? What's in your disability check? I would
1: switch it more to depth of anaesthesia. Okay. And then the don't ever forget glucose. Depth of anesthesia, how do we know if we're giving too much or too little? And that's going to be dependent on how we're maintaining. If it's gas, using the anesthetic machines, MAC, and making sure that's the correct for the patient demographic. Mm -hmm. If it's intravenous anesthesia, then depth of anesthesia monitoring, whatever you're using in your local hospital, whether it's this or entropy or something else weird and wonderful.
0: Yeah. So Whatever the rep has managed to get through (laughs) your department. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because for my D, I would include temperature monitoring and I would also include neuromuscular qualitative, not qualitative, quantitative, that's what I meant, monitoring on top of that as well. We're then getting on to E. Is that exposure in this checklist, Duncan, or is it something else?
1: So, E can be exposure, but I think also, specific to anaesthetics, electricity as well. Ooh, sounds exciting. So, exposure, making sure that the patient's pressure points are protected, particularly if you're in a position that's not supine. So, lateral positions, prone positions is extremely important, not only for the surgical access, but also to avoid nerve compression, pressure sores, yeah. things like that. And that includes not just the limbs, uh, but also your anaesthetic side of thing, you're monitoring your tubes making sure they're not pressing on any uh, patient surface and causing a mark or potentially skin breakdown lovely and including eyes in that as well is very important yep. then electricity as well as equipment side have i plugged my pumps in if i'm using any yep. pumps very important particularly if you're on a high turnover list the last thing you want is a pump failing just at or after induction for the next case because you forgot to plug it in yeah, and
0: luckily to say face, your anaesthetic machine is usually plugged in by your ADP, so you don't have to worry about that. Other parts are F for fluids, which is talking about your IV cannula line. Is that connected and working? Is it dripping through?
1: Fluids in, but also fluids out. Does the patient catheter. need a catheter? Very important, and make sure that catheter is not obstructed and you can see it.
0: That's really good. And then we've got our last one, which is G. So what's G? Go for coffee?
1: No, it's give. Ah. Give to the patient. Yeah, that so that's if
0: you've got any antibiotics, transamic acid, or any antiseptics you need to give, you can start giving it now, and then you can run through whilst you're doing that. You can run through your H G AG again. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's like any A T E assessment when we're in an acute setting. Recheck. Mm-hmm. Once you've done, made a change, reassess, and your this will get quicker and quicker mm-hmm. with more experience.
0: Perfect. so That's a bit about our vigilance. Next up, we've got how to keep the patient safe. So, Duncan, how to keep the patient safe during
1: your maintenance? The goals are to keep the patient as physiologically normal as possible whilst our anaesthetic and the surgery itself tries to stop them being physiologically normal. I think that's the simplest oh, way to put it. Pesky Sussex. Exactly. Yeah. Part of this, which comes with experience and exposure to different surgeries, is preempting and counteracting different parts of the surgery, particularly if there is a part where there's going to be significant blood loss or there is a part where there is going to be manipulation of cardiovascular physiology, for example, applying clamps, releasing clamps. You can preempt this and prepare the patient's physiology for this
0: that's why a surgeon will say to you knife to skin is in case you need to double check to make sure that the patient doesn't need any further deepening or analgesia cover if they're about to put a big surgical stimulus in these become more important when the physiology is on a knife edge from either the patient's side or from the surgical side and those will be in neurosurgery cardiothoracic surgery when you start out you might be in the knee list and some of the surgical critical steps may not be apparent to you, knowing what they're doing through surgery and what they're trying to achieve will help you then adjust your analgesia requirements throughout. The other thing that it took me a while to get into was documentation. And the NSA chart, when I started out, looked like a set of hieroglyphics. But it's a rough way we can give an overview to our listeners, Duncan?
1: Yeah, most charts have a pre-op part, they have an induction part, a maintenance part. And an emergence part that's broken down further into the procedures you've done maintenance which is right recording their vital signs documenting drugs you've given at which times highlighting important surgical timings such as tourniquets up turn down clamps on clamps off you know when you're f- finishing the anesthetic have you stopped your anesthetic things like that
0: and these usually um occur of five minutes they usually have to be eligible so i've been made to rewrite some aesthetic charts by some consultants who claimed that they were the drawings of a caveman yeah have all been there if you're lucky enough to work in a hospital that has electronic aesthetic charts then luckily your handwriting won't even come into it
1: no i want to add in one more thing with maintenance mm. actually rhymes with documentation kind of it's communication oh, that that's not <laughs> rhyme at all <laughs> it ends in shin it's oh communication is an essential part of maintenance because you can't preempt something if you don't know it's going to happen and surgeons will become very task focused because they want to do the best surgery they can so it is important to talk to them at points which you can talk to them and you'll learn this from experience but also watching your consultant talk to the surgeon or move around the room in order to sort of preempt key parts of the surgery. I didn't really think
0: about why that was important until I've taken on more responsibility in anaesthetics and for example in appendixes I'll ask how's it going what's it looking like because if it's burst and there's pus everywhere this patient's likely to have a systemic inflammatory response their blood pressure is likely to go down they might need some more fluid so there are ways you can adapt your anaesthetic into what they're doing other part of maintenance that we've discussed previously is great opportunity for some teaching and picking a subject so to maintain your learning to maintain your learning there we go
1: there we go okay
0: that sounds like a cheesy noughties american sitcom but that no that's good you can maintain your learning duncan what do you do
1: to maintain your learning that's a good question i think think reflect on what you've done and talk to talk Mm. through the technique you've used and why you've used it for any different part of the anaesthetic to keep your mind ticking over and active and that problem-solving element of how would I approach this a different way or how could I have done this differently if it wasn't so smooth, using that time to then think, can I start maintaining my portfolio workplace-based assessments as long as that's not going to distract from you delivering the anaesthetic?
0: maintenance the surgeon says they're onto skin does that mean we switch off the anaesthetic machine duncan
1: i mean that is one way of doing it it's not a very good way of doing it this is where we get to the emergence phase this is as important as induction and maintenance there's a nap 4 study which showed that about 30 percent of airway emergencies happen at the time of emergence it just shows you how critical a time period this is and it's not something to be underestimated it can go from 0 to 100 very quickly. It's a time where there's a lot of human factors that can affect it as well. Mm. So it tends to be people are loud, people are doing their own things, the scrub team are clearing away, the surgeons may well have left because they've got to run and see the next patient or another patient they've been called to, or they've got to document notes. Your ODP is starting to get ready for the next case as well as helping you emerge the patient. So it's a time where you really need to switch that vigilance back on and kick it up a gear. There's a lot of key safety steps, but... I don't want to just form a list.
0: Although we don't want to form a list, that is part of what the DAS extubation guidelines are, is that actually it's a stepwise process. You firstly will plan your extubation, and that's looking at how risky this extubation will be. Mm -hmm. Next, you prepare for the extubation, you optimise both the patient factors, and you think about optimising other factors you stratify them into low and at risk from that if you haven't before. Then you perform the extubation on the low or high-risk algorithm, and then you do post extubation care. So let's go on to the first step, which is assessing the airway. Can you think of any anaesthetic risk factors that might mean that the airway is difficult and you might
1: have to think more carefully about your extubation? classic example would be shared airway surgery, if there's airway bleeding or airway soiling need to think about whether that's it's appropriate to take the tube out
0: yes that could come under restricted airway access or that the airway might deteriorate from trauma or edema patient factors so they can have severe cardiovascular respiratory disease I've had a patient who was a normal trauma patient who must have developed a HAP and we couldn't get their oxygen lower than 50% so we decided actually this extubation was too high risk so we're not going to do it. We're going to take them to ITU and for a period of recovery and then they might
1: have specific surgical requirements that might make them higher risk. Very broadly emergence can be thought of re-establishing some key things for the patients. That's re-establishing consciousness, re-establishing their own airway, airway reflexes and breathing and then establishing adequate analgesia for the patient.
0: That's interesting. So how can you make sure that the patient is breathing adequately?
1: There's a few ways you can do this. The key things are establishing that the patient is breathing spontaneously, so yep. on their own, with minimal support to, estab- uh, at- uh, to obtain a an adequate tidal volume and minute ventilation. Maintain adequate oxygenation. You want to have Again, kind of pre oxygenated the patient for emergence in case there is an airway emergency. And you need to be aware of what their oxygen requirement was prior to this. So you're not just, they've not been on 80% oxygen and then suddenly you're going up to 100% and their sats look good. If someone's already on 80% oxygen, that's probably a sign you shouldn't be extubating them. Well, that
0: that brings us neatly on to actually the DAS extubation algorithm, which goes through it in a stepwise process in terms of thinking about how high risk this extubation is and whether or not we should be extubating them entirely. Then prepare, if you are going to extubate them, preparing and optimising the patient or um, the other factors, such as location, then going through with the actual extubation and they divide that into low and high risk, and then your post-op extubation care. Now, we're not going to read out this algorithm to you because you should that well firstly i think a we don't again we don't want you to fall asleep to mine and duncan's dulcetones and b the best learning is for you going and looking at this but there's a few things that we will pick up on that i think are worthy of discussion and one of those is something that duncan's already mentioned which is the reversal or removal of that anesthetic agents so if we're looking at our triad we've got analgesia and then we've got the amnesia and the muscle relaxant so the muscle relaxant we probably want to reverse first because we don't want people to be awake but not able to move there are different ways of reversing that we're not going to go into those now but they're different drugs and let's say that we monitor them afterwards make sure that they're nice and reversed then how can we remove this amnesic part how does that come out of the system with the either the inhaled or the iv
1: stuff well that does come down to turning a switch off. Making sure it's the correct switch, the correct thing, and Uh, done at the correct time. Particularly when you're a novice, learning not to rush, learning not to try to be too slick. It's better to be slower and safer. Yes, you will see some senior anaesthetists, particularly if they've worked regularly with the surgeon, know the exact time they can turn everything off and the patient will wake up beautifully with a good enough time after the surgeon's finished to avoid any problems. It's important to learn to wake the patient up safely and do your checklists and safety checks and make sure it's as safe as possible before you try and get slicker. You need
0: to do the things that are in the DAS extubation guidelines. You need to position your patient correctly. You're essentially doing the reverse of intubation. You need to suction the back of the mouth that was an the tube to get rid of the extra secretions, pre-oxygenate the patient, and then you need to just wait really. And that's where the patience comes through. As that patient goes from the land of unconsciousness to land of consciousness, they're going to regain their airway protection. If you just pull that tube out, you might pull it whilst they're halfway there. And then what you're risking,
1: Duncan? Oh, lovely bit of laryngospasm there.
0: Yes. And that is something that can make people desaturate within seconds. It's something that me and Duncan are fortunate enough to know how to manage by now but it's something that be respectful of if you're going to pull that tube out you are
1: risking laryngeal yeah. spasm someone relatively high risk can fly through an induction and the maintenance and the whole surgery and then at the last second if the emergence is not done correctly you can have catastrophic results and yeah. you up with a patient intubated and going to itu rather than going to recovery and back to the ward having successfully done a great anaesthetic and surgery Exactly, so
0: be respectful of that. As the patient is able to regain consciousness, because it's very stimulating having an endotracheal tube in, they will start lifting their head up and localising to the tube, where we will then say that they look like they would adequately be able to protect their airway. And that's when the cuff comes down and the endotracheal tube, if you've got one in, comes out. Otherwise, you could damage their vocal cords or when it's an LMA, that's when the LMA would then come out. It is a science and an art, and we will go into it in a bit more detail. However, you should know that you'll see different versions of that, but know that that's normally how we practice it, where we wait for the patient to regain their airway reflexes, then the tube comes out, and then we either place that mask back up with maybe a little jaw thrust to cover them for a little bit of time whilst they
1: are coming out of that plane of anaesthesia. Duncan, is there anything you want to add to that? It's a potentially very dangerous time because you can have peaks of seeming emergence, but then actually the patient can decrease their conscious level again, and so they may lose their protective reflexes. So it's a very difficult time. Along with this, they may start not tolerating the tube, coughing and bucking, breath holding. There's a high risk of laryngospasm when they're going from that deep plane of anaesthesia back to consciousness it is very much worth it as a novice seeing as many of emergencies and extubations as you can in order to age your own guide as to what's good practice and which are the dangerous patients in particular for emergence yeah
0: your low v high risk on the das algorithm mm-hmm. and the factors that go in uh, the factors go in optimizing people for this yeah and duncan's right that plane between deep and awake that light plane of anesthesia is a bit of a danger time where you do risk laryngospasm, which we will go on to in our emergency episodes, but that's why you need to have the ergonomics set up. Everyone relaxes in the theatre about extubation. You shouldn't be relaxing. You should be transferring the patient onto the bed, getting them towards the anaesthetic machine. So you're within arm reach of that APL valve and whilst being able to maintain a jaw thrust, you essentially should be getting them into the same position that you had them for induction, sat up ideally with on oxygen with the patient up and well positioned in the bed with your ODP ready with a syringe and a mask, for you, a face mask for you to be able to hold on to. If you pre-oxygenate your patient for induction, you should be pre-oxygenating your patient for extubation in case there are any difficulties afterwards and they have to be
1: re You can break down the steps of a, a nice, smooth, safe extubation to have the patient positioned before they are regaining consciousness mm. on the trolley, sat up. You want to have suction the airway before they're waking up, because else that's going to stimulate them. You want to then have this suction readily available to hand. You want your post-extubation method of oxygenation ready and plugged in nearby and on. And you want to have your monitoring attached and still running whilst you're in the emergence and extubation process.
0: things off for of this episode we've had some novice peer reviewers message some questions in firstly what is mac slash how do you know your patient is well anesthetized so mac is minimum alveolar concentration the way we use it comes from some experiments that were done in 1960s by dr edgar where he took some volunteers placed them asleep and then looked at the concentration of volatile gas that they were on and then provided them with a nauseous stimulus which I believe was a incision in their leg and then saw whether or not they had head or limb movement. The way we use it today when we describe a MAC of 1 is that we would expect 50% of patients to have no response to a surgical incision. You'll notice that more of your patients will not have a response to a surgical incision, and that is because we give other agents that weren't used in the experiment, such as fentanyl. Next question was How do you know your patient is anaesthetized? Well, not just one thing you use, you can use physiological parameters such as heart rate, blood pressure, whether or not the patient is moving. That obviously depends on whether or not you're using neuromuscular blockade for gas. We also use expired percentage of that volatile agent that we're using coming from their lung, and then we also for TIVA commonly use processed EEG, where they some monitors on the heads and using a computer algorithm will estimate between usually zero and a hundred how deep the patient is. It's not foolproof, and we need to use. A overall patient picture to decide our depth of anesthesia. Next up, we have how do you choose your maintenance agent? And I guess this is a question of TIVA versus gas. For in the TIVA corner, there will be some patient and surgical indications of why you might want to use TIVA. Patient, for example, will be a history of severe post-op nausea and vomiting, or more rare, a risk of malignant hypothermia. For surgical, this will maybe something such as tubeless surgery. To your consultant why you're doing a specific technique, sometimes it may be due to a real indication and sometimes it may be due to the fact they just feel like doing it. Lastly, in a patient who has received neuromuscular blockade, how do I know that it has reversed and the patient is fit to be extubated? Well, this depends on the agent you've used. So if you've used a depolarizing versus non-depolarizing, the suxamethonium should have worn off by the time you're extubating, unless you're literally doing it within five minutes, unless they have suxapnea. For non-depolarizing, this depends on the dose and the time. However, you can use a nerve stimulator, which is an impulse generator, placing electrodes over a nerve, either the facial or the ulnar. The ulna corresponds with the diaphragm. You should be able to see if you press train of four. That's four electrical impulses. You're looking at the ratio between the first and the fourth impulse. You're looking for a solid train of four to say that the patient's neuromuscularly reversed. If not, then you think about a reversal agent being the stigmine with glyco or cigamodex. It should be noted that that seeing it is known as qualitative, and that can pick up small differences between the first and the fourth impulse and that's why we tend to use quantitative which is where we attach some further monitoring onto the thumb to see what the ratio exactly is finally we have some resources for you to look at we have the DAS extubation guidelines listed along with the Association of Anaesthetists AA monitoring standards We then have the e-learning for healthcare modules. We then have the e-learning for healthcare modules about induction and interoperative management, basic techniques. We then have the e-learning for healthcare modules, including maintenance of anaesthesia and emergence from anaesthesia. Next up on our journey is the recovery room. So we will look forward to seeing you there. Bye for now.